and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast episode 23. Today's episode is our third look at misunderstood Christianity, history that deserves to be retold or history that's been overlooked. We're going to look at the pre-Reformation period and the people who contributed to what followed. So we begin. When describing the history of the Protestant Reformation, we tend to begin with October 31st, 1517. Uh, You remember what happens. Yes, uh, Martin Luther added his 95 theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. So, at risk of offending my Lutheran friends, I'm going to argue that when we look at the Protestant Reformation, we tend to begin in the wrong place and at the wrong time. We tend to go uh, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, uh, with uh, Henry VIII thrown in for good measure, uh, rather than any of the alternatives. Today, I throw out convention, and I give you three others, Jan Hus, uh, John Wycliffe, and Joan of Arc. And uh, by that, I don't mean Noah's wife. That's a, a dad joke and a minister's joke all in one. I wish I could claim to be the first to link these three under the banner of Reformation forebears, but I can't. Uh, Just when I became fully convinced of my cleverness, I stumbled upon George Bernard Shaw's introduction to his play, St. Joan. He makes the very same link, and they are linked in other important ways, but we'll leave that for later. So we begin with the Maid of Orleans. Joan was born around 1412 in Donremy, uh, in the northeast, north of Dijon. Uh, she was a peasant, the daughter of a farmer and minor civil official. Sometime around 1424, about the age of 12, she had her first vision or visitation, an event that would change her life and the lives of the French people. First, however, some background. Joan was born during the Hundred Years' War between England and France. Beginning in 1066, the English king is also the Duke of Normandy, and as a result must pay homage to the French king. In 1337, Edward III, English king, refuses to pay homage to Philip VI, and Philip responds by seizing Edward's lands in Aquitaine. Uh, what follows is three or four phases of a, of a war that lasts until 1453. It is the third phase, beginning with the Battle of Agincourt, uh, 1415, that we finally meet Joan, but not before the band of brothers led by Henry V uh, secure the throne of France for Henry's young son, who will one day be Henry VI. I would be remiss if I didn't share a little Shakespeare here uh, from a LibriVox recording of Henry V uh, in the public domain and ably read by Ariel Lipshaw. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. In peace there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. I I know, I know, I've, I've left out the best part, so here it is. The game's afoot. 
follow your spirit, and upon this charge cry God for Harry, England, and St. George. Well, if that doesn't make you want to be English, nothing will. Joan, it seems, uh, did not uh, want to be English. In the years leading up to her vision, much of northern France, including Paris, was ruled by the English Duke of Bedford, regent for the young Henry. The leading French claimant, Charles, later Charles VII, uh, clearly needed a champion, someone to direct a military confrontation with the English occupiers. In her vision, Saints Michael, Catherine, and Margaret encouraged Joan to drive the English out of France and convinced Charles to be crowned king at Reims, then occupied by the English and their French allies, the Burgundians. I'm not sure if she told these saints that she was 12 years old. By 16, she was ready to act on her visions. She failed to get an audience on her first attempt, but by January of 1429, she had impressed various members of the court enough that they allowed her to travel to Orleans to help end the siege. By convincing the court that this was, in fact, a holy war, she gave new life to the war effort. After verifying through a brief inquiry that she was not a heretic or a sorceress, she was given limited access to the council of war. Frustrated by excessive caution and her exclusion from the planning, she set out with a small band to attack the English. Within nine days, the enemy was on the run. Joan convinced Charles to make her co-commander of the French army and began a new campaign. She was 17. By mid-July, just six months after she began her quest, Charles was crowned the King of France in Reims. Fighting continued into the fall, followed by a truce, during which time Joan took up other matters, including sending a letter to the dissenting Hussites demanding that they repent or face crusade. Hussites were followers of Jan Hus, and we'll meet them when we're through with Joan and John Wycliffe. By May, the truce ended, and we find Joan fighting a combined England and Burgundian force near Compiègne. Uh, she's captured. After Charles fails to ransom her, she's put on trial, a trial that is perhaps the best documented and most famous trial of the Middle Ages. Trial begins with an examination of her character and confirmation of her virginity. She was quizzed on her visions and her ongoing desire to wear military garb, meaning men's clothing. This becomes a major theme of the trial. She proves to be an able witness in her own defense, defending her religious motivation and the integrity of her quest. After three months of trial, she's convicted of heresy and sentenced to immediate execution unless she promises to sign an abjuration document renouncing her visions and giving up men's clothing. She does, but within a week she recants and is burned at the stake. The primary issues for the church are her visions and the extent to which she adopts a direct connection to God through these three saints. Much has also been made of her desire to wear men's clothing, something she claimed was utility in the field and protection from molestation in prison. 
Her letter to the Hussites illustrates the extent to which she looks beyond the hierarchy of the Church and adopts a role generally received for cardinals and popes. This is uh, from Shaw. Uh, He writes, She was in a state of invincible ignorance as to the Church's view, and the Church could not tolerate her pretensions without either waiving its authority or giving her a place beside the Trinity during her lifetime and in her teens, which was unthinkable. Thus an irresistible force met an immovable obstacle and developed the heat that consumed poor Joan. End quote. We give Joan pride of place in the Reformation Hall of Fame because it never occurred to her that the Church should direct, control, or curtail her visions. She sadly learned that a direct connection to the divine was tolerated when needed, but no longer tolerated when victory was assured. Within a few years, great regret appeared concerning her death. When people considered the precise details of her heresy conviction, wearing men's clothing in violation of biblical law, for example, there was an abiding sense that the conviction had to be politically motivated. By 1456, her conviction was overturned, and in 1920, she was declared a saint. Before we look at the Hussites, the group that Joan took such special interest in, even assuming the role of Pope and threatening them with a crusade, we need to back up a little and return to England. John Wycliffe was born in Yorkshire, circa 1330, and beginning in his late teens, spent most of his life in Oxford. He had a fairly typical life as an Oxford academic, splitting his time between the academy and the church, mentoring the next generation, and keeping abreast of emerging trends. Sometime after he earned his doctorate in 1372, he was enlisted by the government of the day to assist in a dispute with Rome. But to understand the dispute, we need to go back in time. Like all histories of England, uh, we eventually return to Robin Hood, or at least King John, the king so bad that no one has dared name a Prince John for 800 years. So King John, famous signer of the Magna Carta in a dispute with the leading nobles, also had trouble with the church. John became convinced that he alone should name the new Archbishop of Canterbury the head of the English church. The church hierarchy had the same idea, and after the death of the incumbent in 1205, both the Canterbury chapter and the king sent possible candidates to Rome. Both were rejected. King John disputed this rejection and was subsequently excommunicated by Pope Innocent. The dispute was finally settled in favor of Innocent's choice, and to rub salt in the wound, England was to pay a thousand marks a year as an ongoing reminder of their subservience to Rome. By Wycliffe's time, the government was looking for a way to get out of this payment and turned to the Oxford scholar for advice. He told them simply to stop paying, that the church was wealthy enough and that poverty should be the church's goal at any rate. This opinion, among others that we'll look at in a moment, got Wycliffe in trouble with the church. He was examined for heresy, something that generally doesn't end well, particularly when he was fond of the idea that scripture was more authoritative than the pope. 
He was soon subject of a papal bull condemning his views, but this was overcome by events in Rome. The Pope died, that was Gregory XI, and within a matter of months there were two popes. The cardinals first elected Urban, who it seems turned out to have a bit of a temper, so the same cardinals left town and elected another pope, Clement. This continued well into the next century and even featured the addition of a third pope, Alexander, before the whole mess was sorted in 1415. Meanwhile, Wycliffe was the lucky beneficiary of all this chaos. The church was divided and distracted and hardly had time to bother with a troublesome academic from Oxford. So he continued his work. He and his colleagues translated the Bible into English, uh, the first full translation. He questioned the doctrine of transubstantiation, the belief that the bread and wine become the actual body of Christ. Uh, The bread, he says, does not cease to be bread. He spoke against private confession, against indulgences, something Luther would later dispute, and spoke in favor of the idea of justification by faith alone. But his biggest contribution was the Wycliffe Bible, completed in 1395. Translated from the Latin Vulgate, it lacks the importance of Tyndall's translation from Hebrew and Greek, but it is an important uh, step in opening the door to a vernacular English version. Here's a sample. Alle things hantime, and alle things under sun passen be her spaces. Team of Perse and team of Ding, team to plant and team to draw up that that is planted, team to slay and team to make a hole, team to destroy and team to build, team to web and team to lie, team to be wild and team to dance. Well, many thanks to LibriVox for providing this wonderful recording of Ecclesiastes 3. The voice you heard was Martin Giesen. Of course, it's in the public domain. In making a case for an English Bible, Wycliffe said, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue. So did Christ's apostles. In reply, the church said, by this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar, and they are more available to lay and even women who can read than they were to learned scholars who have high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. End quote. Wycliffe died quietly in his bed, a rare thing for a heretic in the Middle Ages. We should add that the Council of Constance, the same church council that finally solved the three-pope problem, resolved to execute the already dead Wycliffe. So, 44 years after his death, his bones were exhumed and burned and then cast into the River Swift. Such is the unlikely end of the man commonly called the Morning Star of the Reformation. Briefly, we now turn to the people who followed Wycliffe, heretics that became known as Lollards. Lollards took Wycliffe's ideas, summarized them, and promoted them, such as, you should read and interpret the Bible on your own. 
The church should be an impoverished church that lives off alms and not large tracts of land. There should be no non-biblical practices such as indulgences, pilgrimages, vestments, etc., and this would include transubstantiation. And the Lollards promoted predestination, arguing that all the routes to salvation that the church provided were false. There is a lively debate about the extent to which the Lollards influenced the Reformation over a hundred years later, and we don't have time to get into it, but it is worth noting that the pre-Reformation church in England continued to prosecute people with Lollard ideas well into the 16th century, with Lollards burned at the stake as late as 1521. Moving on, we'll take a brief look at Jan Hus, a Czech martyr and champion of Wycliffe's ideas in Bohemia. There's some uh, question regarding the extent to which Hus was influenced by Wycliffe or reached many of his conclusions on his own, but since he translated at least one book by Wycliffe into the Czech language, we think we know the answer. Hus uh, trained at the University of Prague and was ordained in 1401. He may have learned about Wycliffe through the exchange of ideas that took place after the marriage of Anne of Bohemia to Richard II of England. Hus preached and taught the Bible as the authority for the church, promoted poverty for the church, uh, an end of abuses, Christ as the head of the church over the Pope, better clerical behavior, and predestination. By 1407, he was ordered to stop preaching, and by 1412, he and his Hussite followers were excommunicated. Meanwhile, Huss became a national hero, went into exile, wrote two books, and denounced the Pope and called him the Antichrist. In 1415, Huss was invited to defend himself at the Council of Constance, the same council that murdered Wycliffe's bones, and foolishly he went. Soon he too was condemned and burned, a mistake that Luther would have the good sense not to repeat when he was invited to defend himself a century later. Meanwhile, in Bohemia, the Czechs were in revolt. Hussites took over most of Prague's churches, the university, and the unrest began to spread. The new pope, Martin V, pronounced a crusade against the Hussites in Prague. Catholic order was soon restored, but resentment lingered. The Hussites managed to gain control of the church in Prague, but soon broke into factions. Conservatives wanted reform with old worship. Radicals wanted a new social order. Taborites wanted a separate community. Adamites wanted to be nude. And the followers of one peaceful fellow were, of course, pacifists. The Hussites continued to resist the Catholic Church for years to come, but were largely a spent force. Their ideas, however, and the ideas of Wycliffe were circulating and would capture the imagination of academics and preachers such as Luther and Calvin in the next century. So we'll leave off for today. Uh, next time, uh, we're going to look at the labor church movement, jumping 400 years to another time of change and unrest. Thank you for joining me.